Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast. Late on a Wednesday, where I am down here in Knoxville, Tennessee, but up there in New York City. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com is there. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad, my friend. Um, what is the best Christmas gift you've ever gotten? Oh, that's a really, really tough question. Um, that's really tough because I don't, I don't remember at this point everything I got as a kid. Mm-hmm. It was, it was probably something when I was a kid, some really crazy Lego thing that I, that I absolutely adored. But nothing, nothing is coming specifically to mind though. Now that you ask. When you were a kid, though, so you're going young, young, like the Lego, so I mean, middle school, I mean, high school, I mean, nothing. Well, because I, for me personally, I feel like Christmas gifts, the Christmas gifts you get as a kid are always going to mean something different than the ones you get as an adult. And I think because of that, for me, I'm always going to have a different appreciation for the one as a kid, because when I was a kid, like those were just the most guilt, not even guilt, guilt's not the word, those were just the most pure joy experiences was just the toy on christmas it was just the thing you wanted and now here it is and you get to play with it just for the the two hours of your life that it entertained you before you got bored and moved on to something else (laughs) that was those were the happiest two hours of your life up to that point probably they're pretty they're up there man they were they were up there but it was also the feeling of just like I was more into the uncertainty where I was I was I a big fan of the am I getting this or am I not cuz my parents were very clear about like you can do it get a list all you want but I we can't confirm or de- deny which ones we're going to get off that list. So I liked trying to figure out the weeks leading up which ones they went with and which ones they did and then still being surprised by getting things that were not on the list altogether. Um, and they always got a great return on investment for me for Christmas gifts. Like, for instance, when they got me a mongoose bike and I proceeded to uh, ride that bike through my neighbor's garage door and get on uh, Fox I, 5 I, News. I have heard this story. I'm really I'm really interested to see how you plan on <laughs> segueing from this into whatever you wanted to start with exactly. I'm very interested. I think there's a natural Mets corollary here somewhere. Um, but about think, you driving into a garage. <laughs> that's what we call the Mets GM, eh, GM search, is uh, just flying through and running into a garage and then uh, finding that Billy Epler is uh, on the other side, hiding in a corner, just uh, minding his own business, and you're just like, come on, you're with me. But um that's the that's the transition. That was that was the rib shot for the much earlier pun you made, but I, I just kind of had to wait to get it there because <laughs> because there was no pun by the end. I was doing my best, John. I'm doing know, my best on I this know. very podcast. Um, but we have uh, we have a lot of different stuff to talk about. We got to talk about your Boston Red Sox today. Yes, uh, there are some good pieces, especially one on Fangraphs.com that uh, everyone should go check out by Ben Clemens on John Means. So we'll hit that. Um, but I want to first, we have not really hit on the Cubs offseason, and this was something that I wanted to pick your brain on, John, because Marcus Stroman, we mentioned a little bit uh, before the lockout, his signing kind of went under the radar, he loved Chicago, this, that, and the other, they signed Clint Frazier, they kind of acted like they were going to be a team that spent a little bit this offseason, and maybe are not going to do a full-on re- rebuild, and they hired a new assistant GM, and Jed Hoyer got elevated, but... I I am curious what happens when, uh, like hopefully in uh, the not too distant future when baseball activity resumes and free agent signings resume. 
I am curious how they're going to operate because the Strowman signing doesn't make much sense to me unless you're thinking that you can get right back into it uh, in the NL Central. What do you make of that and their early decisions in uh, in the winter pre-lockout? So I think the Strowman signing feels to me a lot like a smaller version of what the Rangers did with Marcus Semien and Corey Seager in that this is not necessarily a move that's only about 2021, or sorry, 2022, but a move that's about the future too. And granted, it's on slightly lesser terms because it's only a three-year deal for Stroman and with less future overall impact because this is one you know good starter we're talking about as opposed to a, a middle infield for the next four to five years minimum. But at the same time, I think Stroman does a couple things for the Cubs. The first thing is he keeps them at a relatively stable floor. He helps them achieve a relatively stable floor. Because I, I, I do think the Cubs are probably done spending. I think they I think they had the gut for one, maybe two relatively sizable contracts. But otherwise, I, I don't really see any reason why they would start spending all of a sudden. Part of that is I, you know, I don't think the Cubs do what they did last year if there was suddenly some new willingness to ramp back up. I think, if anything, that might happen in a more gradual way going forward. Although, who knows? It's the Ricketts family. They're mostly evil. Regardless, I don't see the Cubs jumping back into the free agency frenzy. I mean, even when they were at their even when they were at their peak or when the window was open or their prime or whatever we're going to call it, they weren't even bothering to do that in the first place. I think this is more an acceptance that in this stage, in this particular year of free agency, especially with the CBA now expired and there's going to be a whole new one coming up, and who knows what's going to be in it and how it's going to treat free agency and arbitration and 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 all that other fun stuff. I think you're seeing a lot of teams that want to lock in these guys now and figure we'll figure we'll we'll get the pieces in place and we'll start getting pieces in place now and we'll figure it out later. I think part of that too is the fact that we are almost certainly going to get expanded playoffs uh, through this new CBA one way or the other. I think that is the thing that the that the league wants most out of all of this because it is basically free money for them and it is probably the biggest bargaining chip the players hold, although the size of that chip is... How and when they use that chip is is a little fraught, but regardless, assuming that we do get expanded playoffs, and assuming it does look something like the structure that we saw ESPN report, I think right on the, the, the same day that most of these signings were wrapping up, or the day that they were happening, I can't quite remember, You know where it does look like we're going to get basically somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think, 12 to, 12 to 16 teams in the postseason... Obviously, that lowers the floor for how easy it is to get to the postseason, which means a team that, you know, anywhere in that 80 to 85 win range is now theoretically and very much potentially a postseason team. And so I think the combination of the Cubs doing stuff that's both for, the, for this year and for the future and that puts them in a situation where signing Strowman makes sense because, and this is where the NL Central comes in, this is not a particularly hard division for the Cubs to win even in their current state. I think you and I would both agree before we even get there that one of St. Louis or, or Milwaukee is, is probably the favorite to win this division next year. I would probably lean Milwaukee right now, but I haven't looked at either roster deep enough. But either way, those are the two best teams in the division. I don't think there's any real argument on that. But then the Pirates are obviously the Pirates. They're not going to be good for God knows how long. And the Reds have made it very clear that 2022 is not about competing for them. It's about cutting costs. So I, I think we can pretty safely say the Reds are not going to be a, a competitive team. Or maybe they have the same idea that the Cubs do that they can be a competitive team just in a lower win bracket in that 80 to 85 win space. Regardless, though, I think the Cubs, they're not a good team. I don't think you could look at the Cubs right now and say, you know, even with Stroma, that that's a good team. But I think you can say it's much closer to a 500 team 
than I think people initially assumed going into this offseason. And certainly, I think not just adding Stroman, but also getting Wade Miley basically for free uh, was really helpful in that regard, too. And I have to imagine they're probably expecting bounce backs from the likes of Ian Happ or Kyle Hendricks or some of the other kind of leftover veterans on their staff. You know, Wilson Contreras and what the Cubs do with him is going to be interesting to see, given that they signed Jan Gomes. I don't I'm, don't exactly know if they plan on seeing what Contreras can get them. I mean, it's not the worst idea. It's a very catcher-starved market. There may be a handful of true contenders out there who are willing to part with some nice pieces for Contreras if that's you know if that's a direction that the Cubs want to go. Regardless, though, I think Stroman helps raise the floor for both 2022 and, 2022 and going forward if you figure that the Cubs, like a lot of other teams seemingly do, have decided that the best way forward now isn't so much the hard tank and rebuild because, you know, as we pointed out, I think a, a few dozen times now, that strategy and system doesn't really work anymore. It's predicated on a line of thinking from other franchises that doesn't really exist. When every franchise kind of behaves in the same way, it's really hard to make a hard tank work as you're seeing in Baltimore. Plus, it's so dependent on stuff like player development, drafting, and also if the financial incentives and structures that uphold that entire system are potentially going to change, well, then maybe now is not the best time to try to get into that particular game. So I think it makes sense from a Cubs perspective in the same way that, I, like I said, I think Semyon and Seeker make sense for the Rangers and the same way that I think, uh, who was the other team who made a kind of a surprising big signing? Was it... Um, Jesus, it feels like that was already like 10 years ago when all this happened. I mean, the but Tigers, really Baez. Uh, yeah, with the Tigers with Baez and Eddie Rodriguez. I yeah. think you make an argument that they're probably they're the better of the, the best of those three teams and probably the closest to actual contention for a variety of factors. Regardless, I, I think you're seeing the Cubs do something that you... I think now that the Giants sort of kind of pioneered, but other teams have certainly latched on. Uh, Milwaukee, obviously Tampa was a, was probably the true pioneer, and the Giants kind of just you know stepped it forward a little bit. Uh, the Red Sox have been doing it, as we're going to talk about in a bit. And I think it's just that idea that you can be a contender but w- without having to spend now because the bar is so much lower, because there are a bunch of franchises that have just effectively given up, and because the playoffs will expand at some point. I think when the playoffs did expand two years ago, that gave front offices enough of a an idea at least of what things would look like going forward. And so when they, you know, do their modeling and make their predictions and projections, they could say, okay, can we at least get this team to 80 wins? If so, there's an X percent chance we can make the playoffs depending on the context around it. And I think that's probably going to be the new dividing point when it comes to, are we serious about trying or are we just going to keep punting? And truthfully, I don't know how many other teams will keep going with the hard rebuild except for, you know, criminal cases like Pittsburgh because they fundamentally do not care there. But I think at the same time, like the, what the Cubs are doing, what the Rangers are doing, I think you might, depending again on what the CBA looks like once we do have a new CBA, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how things kind of operate going forward. And maybe that does save free agency a little bit in that regard. But I also think there's, I mean, a lot of the free agency splurge, I think, was motivated by not knowing what free agency is going to look like on the other side that's necessarily and I think there are teams that just identified, well, if that's going to be the case, then, you know, maybe it's Chicago. It's like, well, we really like Marcus Stroman as a second-tier starter option because we're not going to spend the money for Kevin Gaussman or Robbie Ray because that doesn't make sense for our team as currently constituted. I think it makes sense. I think it's just something that you have to – there's a lot of context around it and a lot of still moving pieces around it. But I think overall, you know, puts Chicago in a better position to capitalize, one, if the Central is weaker than it, than it looks, and two – if the expanded playoff structure does actually come into being, and now we're suddenly talking about two extra postseason slots or whatever it is per league, you know, that, that's a huge difference, especially in the NL, 
where you already have, you know, the Giants, the Dodgers, potentially the Padres, the Brewers, the Cardinals, the Braves, now the Mets. You know, there are a lot of teams in that 85 already to 95 plus win window, but that 80 to 85 range does seem a little fertile for a team like Chicago anyway. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But we'll see what happens. I'm just curious to see uh, after the fact what ends up happening in Chicago. Um We'll see, because I think both Chicago teams are in interesting spots uh, going forward. So we'll see what ultimately unfolds in, uh, in Chi-Town, Northside and Southside. Uh, Buck Showalter, we had to bring in the Mets at some point. Buck Showalter, he's a guy who, hey, it's uh, it's a veterans league now. It's a veteran manager league. Brian Snicker, we got, uh, 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 why am I, oh, Tony La Russa in chicago we've got dusty baker still in houston dusty baker it's a it's an old guy renaissance um at the skipper spot so um it should come as no surprise that max scherzer who is uh thor may be gone but he may have thor like uh power behind the scenes uh with his new contract uh with the mets that he wants buck Walter to be the next mets manager would you would you be okay with this and also are you surprised that max scherzer is able to have this much sway and uh, that he is so pro Walter? i mean a dude doesn't get a 130 million dollar contract without getting a few um without essentially becoming the de facto player general manager mm-hmm. i mean i think that was always kind of the i don't necessarily think it's obviously i'm not going to come around and say it's a bad thing that the mets signed max scherzer I just think that this was always a likely side effect of hire of signing Max Scherzer is especially for the deal you gave him and for as uh, thirsty as the Mets were in pursuing him. He now holds a fair amount of power in that organization, especially because he is far and away the best veteran you have on that team now. And also because he is very high ranking in the MLBPA. He is a very he is a power player in the world of baseball simply as a player. And so, yeah, I'm also not surprised that that he wants Buck around. Buck is very much an old school manager. Not, not necessarily in terms of, you know, I, I don't think he's the, you know, I don't think we're talking about the, the resurrection of Casey Stengel here or anything, but Buck is very much a guy who, when it comes to a veteran like Scherzer, who is very much proven and earned everything he has, he's more likely than not to say, you know what you pitch and you pitch the way you feel good about, and I'll be here to, you know, do whatever else. I think it makes sense on another level, too, because I've always felt like, you know, given the stupidity and silliness of the Mets and their market and everything else, that you kind of need a, a no-nonsense veteran type who could just kind of be gruff but not rude about it. You know what I mean? It, it, I think it's in a similar vein to what Terry Collins was supposed to be, only Terry Collins clearly did not have the in-game chops in terms of the moves or the acumen, really, I think, to be up there, I mean, that's the big question with Showalter is, you know, first of all, he has not managed in quite a bit. Obviously, the last time he managed was that miserable Orioles-Blue Jays wildcard game where Zach Britton stayed in the bullpen for too long. And it was pretty much the last gasp of the uh, pre-Andrew Miller bullpen change that happened in the postseason. That I think exactly that same postseason or maybe the year after. I can't remember already. Um, certainly, he's had plenty of time to learn. Uh, he's been a broadcaster, obviously, throughout that time. So he's he's been exposed to the game. You know, this wouldn't be the equivalent of the Mets hiring uh, that former Nationals executive who worked at a law firm for the last four years or whatever. This is a guy who's still been in baseball, and so at least, and certainly in someone in Buckshaw Walters, forgotten more about baseball than most people will ever learn in ten, could ever learn in ten lifetimes. But I, I don't know. It just seems. I mean, you could do worse than handing over your team to veterans like Max Scherzer and and Buckshaw Walter. You know, there's should at least be a minimum on silliness. I don't know. I, I just 
what is the identity of the Mets at this point? Is it Max Scherzer and Buck Showalter? Is it just the very, very obvious go for broke strategy now? I don't know because it, I think it that's what it is. Feel... It's just we're going to sign everybody we can and see what happens. Yeah, and, and I guess that's probably what you should have expected out of Steve Cohen, but it just generally feels like there's not. And there's there's always stuff going on behind the scenes that you know we that you and I are not privy to and then don't know about. But speak for yourself, Cohen and I are are good DM <laughs> friends. But I, I think to me, it's I'm got curious good about, NFT you know, advice, Mets, all that. Do you give him art advice? Uh, he gives. I don't give him art advice, but the NFT world, I, I'm. I, it's very illuminating. Yeah. I'm getting a lot. He's he's definitely going to get involved in a, some enormous NFT scandal, isn't he? I still don't understand what it. That's a, a whole other thing. I, it, does, I, it doesn't matter. <laughs> they're, basic, they're basically ways to scam people out of money for all intents and purposes. Um, but yeah, I just wonder what is the identity of the Mets at this point, and what is not just in terms of like on the field, but organizationally, because when you hire. Buck Showalter, you're saying pretty definitely this is an old school organization. You know, Buck is not a guy who is part of that kind of new wave mentality. And that's not to say, he can't, like I said, he can't change. Dusty Baker changed. Uh, Tony LaRusso may have changed. But this definitely feels more like the White Sox hiring LaRusso than it does the Astros hiring Dusty Baker. This feels way more like a guy who is liked and well known, at least by the people making the decision who is being entrusted with you're the you're the veteran you're the old guy you're the you know you're the voice of reason and that's what you're going to be and that's really all we need or want at this point but i don't know that it necessarily moves the mets forward and i think that's always been the question with the mets in recent years as teams have gotten smarter is are the mets keeping pace with that and i'm not going to say that hiring buck showalter is proof that the mets are stupid I'd, i'd far from it i don't think it's stupid at all to hire buck showalter i just think it says a lot about where the mets are right now in that this is their priority managerially as opposed to maybe someone who's somewhat of a different thinker or maybe someone who is, you know, a more uh, a more new school representative in, in terms of what the what they want to do. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they felt like that was what Luis Rojas was and it just didn't work and they want to just get a little more traditional with it. But I guess that's kind of the thing. The Mets feel very traditional right now. And that's not to say that's a bad thing, but it's certainly notable in this very kind of uh, new age baseball landscape. For sure, for sure. Do you think he ultimately gets the job? I think so. I, I think he's, if he is Max Scherzer's preferred candidate, I don't see how he doesn't, especially when you look at all the other candidates and they are more bench coach guys who are coming from the newer, organi- the newer smarter organizations, who I think would be kind of a very Dave Roberts or Alex Cora-esque type move for, for the Mets. But I don't know that that's really what they want right now. And I figure, too, it's also a very, like, Whoever the Mets hire, you're giving them a very tough assignment. You're you're saying like this team is coming into the into the season with 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 World Series aspirations. I don't think you can come out of an offseason when you sign Max Scherzer and then come out and say, well, if we win a title, that'd be nice. But you know, no, you're 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 actively trying to win a title with the with the moves the Mets have made this winter. And I think it would maybe the assumption or maybe the idea is it's a lot of pressure to put on a first time manager, which I believe any of the other candidates would be. I can't remember the exact list off the top of my head. I think Brad Osmus was the one guy on that list who has managed previously, and I'm pretty sure Osmus is just on that list as a favor to him for Billy Epler. I cannot believe the Mets would actually consider hiring someone who has failed with two different teams now as a manager. Regardless, I wonder if part of it, too, is I feel like Showalter is very, very used to this from his many stints, including obviously his stint with the Yankees uh, in the heyday of George Steinbrenner's craziness. You know, they he knows the New York market. In fact, he knows probably a lot of the beat reporters he's 
good. If he were the Mets manager, he'd probably know a lot of the same guys from when he was the Yankees manager because that market never changes. But he's been around the block. He knows how to handle stuff. And this team always throws silliness and scandals at you. So, yeah, it makes sense. I just don't see how I don't see really see what the argument is for anyone else, given where the Mets are right now. I think if they'd had a quiet offseason or, or what we have had of the offseason, maybe you could make the argument it's like, oh, the team needs to go in a different direction. We're going to try to get smarter and more efficient or whatever the buzzwords are. But I think Showalter is the one that makes sense with what they've done so far this winter. OK, there you go. There you go. Um, there was like a good piece in SI.com this week about whether or not the Braves uh, will risk a World Series repeat opportunity. And it stems around their spending. Like right now, the spending is about like 30 million. Their payroll for that matters, uh, 30 million down from what it was a year ago. Um, obviously, a lot of that is tied to what happens with Freddie Freeman and some of the more difficult outfield decisions um, that they have to make. But... I I read this and I was like expecting to get mad like Liberty, Liberty Media record profits last year that's no surprise there but you know I'm unfazed John I was reading this and I was like don't care I was just like no, you I'm fine World Series yeah I really don't care it's, like, it's it's much easier to swallow this when you get when you win a World Series it really is granted like. That grace period is a tough one, especially when you do stuff like say, I don't know, trade Mookie bets for prospects later yeah. on. And I think every Braves fan, regardless of, of you know the World Series win, should and has every right to be and should be mad if Freddie Freeman walks and goes somewhere else. Because there's really no defending that decision. It's not like the Braves have some top first base prospect far, you know, somewhere down in the system who's ready. You know, per our depth charts, their starting first baseman right now would be Orlando Arcia, you know? And granted, I don't think the Braves would actually do that if push came to shove. But point being, there's not a good solution there in-house. And there's certainly not a better solution there out, you know, outside on the market. Unless they figure themselves real players for Matt Olson. But that seems like it's going to be a very crowded derby. So, I, you know, I can't imagine Atlanta is banking that that's necessarily going to happen. Regardless, I will say that the Braves did luck out in that besides Freeman, they don't really have any other impact free agents. You know, you can argue that, you know, well, what about literally NLCS MVP Eddie Rosario and World Series MVP Jorge Soler, along with Jock Peterson, who could, you know, was a big force that entire postseason. Yeah, those are guys the Braves are not going to bring back. You know, they, they let those, they rode guys who got hot, who were, you know, Rosario and Peterson in particular, reserve outfielders. I think Soler would come back at the DH where once the DH in the NL is... is but you just locked in Adam Duvall. That, I guess that's the other thing is then what do you do with, with Adam Duvall? And eventually at some point you also have to make uh, the consideration that uh, presumably at some point in the spring or early summer, uh, Ronald Acuna will also be back. And granted, you know, coming up a torn ACL, that's not a minor injury. Doesn't We don't know exactly how that's going to affect him or if that rehab is going to go perfectly smoothly all the way through. But certainly the Braves have to be planning on that. And you also have Marcelo Zuna returning because his suspension has officially been served. I don't think he's barring, playing again. The The video that came out, what, two days after um, it, it going down to a misdemeanor or whatever, like, no, it's it's over. There's... I mean, it's I, I think it would be hard for Atlanta. I think, I mean, it's, it's always tough talking about this stuff. I have a feeling that Atlanta would probably just prefer sticking with it because, I mean, the, the optics around it, you can now spin as he did a suspension. He's not going to serve jail time. He understands what he did. He's doing counseling, whatever the you know, whatever exactly it is. Uh, was part of his was part of his agreement with the league and and with whatever uh, 
whatever whatever missed like whatever his charge was that he pled to. You know, I think, and plus the money still owed to him. Uh, the fact that he is not a good defensive outfielder who doesn't really have a whole lot of value around the league. He's 31 years old now. I think the Braves would have to eat a lot of money to move him, and I don't really see where the appetite for that is coming from, especially if they're already as presumably hemming and hawing about how much money they want to give to Freddie Freeman, who should be a very, very easy you know, addition in that sense. I don't think so, it's the money with Freeman. I think it's the years. If I had, like, I think it's the years that really scares them, which I don't even think is all that... Uh, much of a hot take like the i mean they're probably just thinking albert pools and flashing lights or sure, chris davis or whatever like they're just they're concerned eric hosmer and even and that's, and that's understandable i i mean i think the reason you do sign freddie freeman to an eight-year deal or whatever is because of those first four years and then you figure the back four out later because quite frankly money is fake but i can understand that that is the mindset probably with the front office and ownership that it's like how long do we want to carry freddie freeman for when he's already a first baseman and he's already over the age of 30. I mean, he's 33, right? He's he's not just past 30, but well past 30 at this point. Um, on the other hand, he's Freddie Freeman. But leaving Freeman aside, um, even if he walks, I mean, I, this isn't, I don't think this team automatically becomes a losing team if Freddie Freeman leaves. It's certainly not a good situation. They, you don't want that to happen. But like I said, the, the nice thing about the rest of their free agent list is that they're not really losing anyone who makes any real difference. Um, and there's certainly a possibility still that they could bring back any of those outfielders, for example, or say a guy like Chris Martin, if they really wanted to. But again, like if Chris Martin is the best pitching free agent you still have left, you're fine. And I mean, if there's really a, a question, I guess, for the Braves or, or potential issue, it's the farm system that was so good has already pumped out most, if not all of its highest level prospects. The last guys you have still standing in that regard are... Christian Pache, who is just has not hit, and that's a really open question at this point. Drew Waters, who is pretty much Pache again. Uh, Shea Langoliers, who at this point is pretty clearly a glove first catcher who will probably be a league average hitter at best. And there's certainly plenty of value in that, but you know he's not the second coming of of, of Buster Posey, certainly. Well, he's already and got his ring talking. in Mississippi. Uh, the Double A Mississippi Braves won it all this year with uh, with oh, Mister with. Mr. Shea and I got to see him in person uh, against the Smokies. I'm sure, and, he's a, and like all the all the prospect reviews of him are raving, especially about his defense. You know, he he is certainly going to be a good player for them. But really, well, Contreras just won the uh, Venezuelan home run derby. I, I mean, I do think Contreras is probably a backup at best at this point, and is probably going to get moved regardless. But I mean, regardless, like that's pretty much the top of the farm system. Beyond that, you're talking guys who are a little further away, like uh, like Michael Harris, or you're talking pitchers who are kind of already sort of kind of semi-known products like Kyle Muller or Tucker Davidson, or you're getting, or you're talking about guys like Jared Schuster or there's another pitcher in AAA that I was, uh, I was looking at earlier, but, or Spencer Strider who are kind of lower tier arms, but you know, they're more back of the rotation guys. The long way, long way short of saying, depending on what happens with Pache's and Waters' development, you're pretty much out of impact internal additions. And that's not to say that that means the end of the Braves, but that they need to... I think the, the roster-building strategy probably changes from here to something closer to... I mean, maybe it is a strategy where it's just guys like Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler when they can get them, and you're just otherwise trying to lock up the guys already there to long-term deals like they did with Albies and they did with, with Acuna, and like I imagine is probably coming at some point for Max Fried and Ian Anderson. Uh, maybe not free because he's already 28, but Anderson, I think a healthy season out of him would probably probably prompt some discussions about that. 
I mean, obviously, everything that's happened to Mike Soroka really hurts in, in that regard, too. But that, to me, feels like the big the big potential issue for Atlanta going forward is that that farm system has it's in that in-between period now where the top tier talent is gone and there's maybe some talent developing in the lower levels, but it's going to be at least, I imagine a, a year or two, probably two or three before you get any more impact guys like that. Again, depending what happens with Pache and waters. So that to me would suggest that maybe you do need to, you know, stay active in free agency and maybe it wouldn't be the worst idea to bring back Freddie Freeman. But I don't think that, I, I mean, let's, let's be honest too. If, even if the Braves were to bring Freddie Freeman back, are they your World Series favorite coming out of the National League for next season? No. Probably not, right? I mean, this it's, was a below 500 team for most of the year. Uh, it was. And then a bunch of guys got hot. And granted, mm-hmm. the true talent level is somewhere in between. But I don't think the Braves were really World Series repeat good odds anyway. Yeah. Unless they well, also, it never happens. Like, I was going back through it, and I'm like, it's kind That's of wild. Thing, it's also very hard to repeat as a World Series champion. And with the expanded playoffs, it's going to get even harder because you're adding more and more teams into that mix. Even if the first, even if the team with the number one seed does get to skip the divisional or whatever silly, uh, whatever silliness they're they're considering. But yeah, I mean, it's I don't know that this was a World Series contender, or better said, certainly the World Series contender because I think they're probably. If they're not the best team in the National League East, it's probably a debate between them and the Mets at this point. They're obviously right there with them. I mean, the Phillies, I think, are a possibility, and then we'll see what the Marlins continue to do because the the rotation with Miami is there, and if they can keep just a couple of guys in the lineup, then they're coming. I just think the tiers in the NLE start. You have the Mets and the Braves, then the next step down is the Phillies and the Marlins, and then the Nationals hanging out by themselves because they're very clearly not going to compete in 2022. So... Yeah, I mean, on that one hand, yeah, the Braves are viable World Series repeat possibilities because, you know, they're they're going to be one of the favorites to win their division with or without Freddie Freeman, I think. But certainly I don't, depending obviously what everybody else does this offseason and where everyone else signs and what trades are made, I don't know that I would go into the next season assuming that they would be World Series favorites anyway. I think it would be a tough path then regardless. I just don't think they should make it any tougher on themselves by not signing Freddie Freeman because, again... Where, it's also like, where is that money going to go? Who is that money going toward? You already have Acuna and Albies signed to, in, especially in Albies' case, insanely below market extensions. You know, right. you don't need to save any money for anybody else at this point. What's what? What are you going to use it on? You might as well just pay Freddie Freeman. Well, There's that's no, also the whole thing. Is that like is that's why I'm frustrated. Is that it's just like one of those things. Like you, you saved on Acuna and Albies. So you could just lock it reason. in, just blank check to Freddie Freeman. That's it. It's just blank check, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and that and that's what I don't get. And then I'm now fully, completely talked myself into, um, what's it called, into into the Braves retaining Freeman because yeah, what else was that fucking money for, really? Yeah, um, I I don't know. It would be a bad look. I think that's the whole thing. It's it's all about the lenses. And if you want to ruin some goodwill, kind of like what you said with Mookie, in a hurry. It's uh, don't sign Freeman, and then the the report comes out after by Heyman or Passon or somebody, and it was because the Braves wouldn't add a year or something, and that's yeah. why. Like that's when it gets dire, and you're like, oh god, uh, this is this got dim yeah, and gloomy and rather quickly. And that's the thing. It's like why why significantly hurt your odds to win again? Why significantly hurt your competing odds just over one or two extra years of Freddie Freeman? That's not worth it at the end of the day. But I think. I mean, certainly the counter argument that the Braves can make is, well, we already won. That's it. You know, we, we if we win again next year, great. But otherwise, hey, you got your World Series. Let that keep you warm at night for as long as it takes to get another one. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, one other interesting piece, and we'll get to your Boston Red Sox, John Taylor. Hooray. <laughs> You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Um, the Orioles, because we are a very, very Orioles-friendly podcast. Um, as the good We might as well know. just call ourselves the, an Orioles <laughs> podcast, given how – an Orioles and Mets podcast. If you like the color – if you're a big fan of the color orange – well, listen to the Chase Thomas podcast, your one stop shop for the Orioles, Mets and Tennessee Volunteers. I was going to say I was going to see how you would uh, navigate uh, the Tennessee Volunteers into that. Yeah, Shout out to the balls, man. I don't know if we talk about them enough on this very podcast. What a great institution. How is that possible? Don't you do like two episodes a week? In Tennessee? <laughs> Not enough, John. Not enough. Not enough. Just, this is this is just wait till we get them. If there ever is a major league team in Tennessee. Good boy. That's we're just gonna have a day, a weekly Tennessee baseball podcast. Well, we already might about, Tennessee about the college baseball. I don't know if you saw the run we went on last year. It was a the, it was a delight, and it's hard. The fighting hound dogs. <laughs> the fighting hound dogs. He says. I don't know what's the, what is the what is the state dog of Tennessee? The state the state dog or the Tennessee volunteer dog? What, well, the, what's the Tennessee volunteer dog? A blue tick hound. Okay, so that's what I figured. Yeah, you just you named the Nashville Hounds. There you go. There's actually a hound dog store uh, here in Knoxville that is a go. merch uh, area that I frequent. Uh, good stuff. Shout out to hound dogs for the local Knoxvillians listening to this. Great stuff over there. Um, hmm. You thought I, I, I? What was I talking about? Oh, the Orioles. The Orioles. The Orioles. Uh, as much as I love to go on a Tennessee rabbit hole, sometimes you lose your place. Um, John Means. Ben Clemens wrote about this today um, at Fangraphs.com, so go check that out if you've not already done so. But I thought his piece was interesting, and I want to get your perspective on it, John, of just what his trade value is, what the trade value is for somebody like Means who can't be the best player on or the number one starter on a contender, but he can certainly be the number three guy. And Clemens, I think, made it an astute point, which is that like the Orioles still got everything they possibly could. And I think his situation is a little bit different than Mancini and uh, other guys who are coming up, uh, Cedric Mullins, guys like that of keeping those guys, I think is a little bit different than keeping means who kind of outkicked his coverage anyway, because of where he was drafted. And yeah, he worked out. He's been great, but the timelines really don't match up for him as a starter. And you kind of want to have Mullins because he's playing every night. And I think there's a difference between a starting pitcher selling high on them who only pitch once every five days or longer sometimes versus an everyday player who's exciting and fun like Mullins and Mancini are where I, I think it's a little bit different. So as much as we would like to keep, see the Orioles continue to try and spend money and keep the guys that actually are good. I think means of the group is the least offensive and actually makes the most sense to me because there's also the possibility that he comes back down to earth. And I mean, his strikeout numbers went down as the season went on. Um, His strikeout numbers are just not good enough to be a number one starter uh, on a contender. But it is interesting because his velocity kind of came out of nowhere and he is he's great. John means is awesome, but he does make sense to me as someone you would move and sell high to the right kind of team. Uh, who is that team for you? And what did you uh, make of the piece? So, I mean, obviously go read Fangraph. Ben made a lot of very good, very salient points. I think the big one is that means as a level of reliability to him that I think makes him a kind of ideal mid tier starter. And as Ben pointed out with some potential tweaks or approach changes and, you know, with the right team uh, front office doing the work and the right pitching development group doing the work, you could turn means into something even more. I think if there, if anything though, that you know appeals to other teams, it's the fact that that means this is 2022 will be his first arbitration season. He's projected to make a little over three million. 
even if you assume that his that his salaries double over the next two years, you're still talking about a grand total of 20 some million dollars over the next three years, which is absolute pennies. And then you're also talking about him hitting free agency as a 31, 32 year old starter that most teams are probably not going to be interested in keeping any longer. So I think he would I mean, he makes sense for any team, really, in terms of specific teams. I mean, I, I don't know necessarily who would have the most interest in him based on the profile he has. But, I mean, you could certainly make an argument that the Phillies could probably use him. Uh, I think Boston, I mean, maybe not, a left-handed pitcher with fly ball problems maybe in the, with maybe the, the best. Yankees the Yankees could use him. Certainly, I think the Yankees could use him. Um, I mean, that's the thing. He makes sense in a lot of different places because he is a very good mid-rotation starter. And pretty much every team in baseball could use that. The Dodgers could certainly use that. The Angels could use that. The the Braves, yeah, maybe less of the Braves, but you know, there there are plenty of teams that he makes sense for. Toronto, he would he would probably make some sense for. Maybe not as much, but okay. I think if you're looking at teams depth chart wise, who probably need the most help, who can realistically be said to be contenders. I think Boston is certainly one of them, although I think it's unlikely they're going to deal with in the division for a guy who Baltimore is almost certainly going to have some kind of relatively high price on. I think Cleveland's rotation could definitely use the depth, although I don't really see Cleveland ever making that kind of move. Uh, Detroit probably would be more interested in rolling with its young guys and seeing what comes out of that, but I think he would make a lot of sense there, especially in that very cavernous ballpark. Uh, Like I said, I already said the Angels. The Twins are a team that needs starting pitching very badly and yet did nothing during the the very frenzied buying portion of this offseason, so that strikes me as odd. Obviously, like you said, the Yankees... Uh, I think you can make a case that, I mean, I don't know if you're if you're the Mariners, do you necessarily, you know, do you want means in that rotation? I probably would. I can understand that they probably want to see what uh, Logan Gilbert and Emerson Hancock and uh, possibly Justin Dunn can accomplish for them. I I would rather have means, but hey, um, I already mentioned the Dodgers as well. Like, yeah, he makes just sense for a lot of different teams. Uh, which bet? Which would be best in particular? That's a good question. I mean, certainly I think the Yankees would have the ability to make it happen. I think the Phillies should really be interested in John Means if he's available. I don't know that he's the best fit in that ballpark. But do they but have the prospect better... capital for him? I That's kind of the thing. That's not a great farm system. I mean, I think if you're Baltimore, what you're probably looking for in a deal is close to the majors ready prospects. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't certainly don't think the, the Phillies give up Bryson Stott for John Means. I, you know, I can't imagine them doing that. Are they more comfortable with like a, like a Simone Muziati or someone instead like a, and Luis Garcia isn't particularly close to the majors. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough with the Phillies because like you said, they don't really have the prospect capital to make a kind of deal like that work. You know, are you just, and if you're Baltimore, do you want guys who are cl- like young guys closer to the minors right now? Or do you just want lottery tickets? You know? So we'll see, but I, I definitely think he, I definitely think he makes sense for a lot of different teams. And I definitely think you're right that there's no real reason for Baltimore to keep him around at this point. I think he's definitely the easiest of that Mullins, Mancini, Mountcastle means group to be moved. Certainly because he has the least attachment to the fan base and certainly has the least overall everyday value in terms of what Baltimore's doing. And pitchers are always something you want to cash out on high if you can. But yeah, he's 29. He's already starting to get too expensive for them, which boy, the Orioles. Uh, it doesn't really make any sense for them to hold on to him too much longer, depending on how they feel about running out 
I mean, they already had the worst rotation in baseball last year, and that was with means. So what what really – how much worse can it really get from there? Yeah, I – there you go. How much – that the, the Orioles, as much as we try, that's how we have to end every Orioles conversation. How much worse could it get? Um, speaking of how much worse could it get, John, your Boston Red Sox, who are going into a offseason that – I don't know what to make of them. I know what to make of the Blue Jays. I know what to make of the Orioles. I know what to make of the Rays. I even know what to make of the New York Yankees. I really don't know what to make of this particular Boston Red Sox offseason based on what we saw this past year because it was so unexpected and because of, like you said uh, in the preview uh, before the season got started, of just that like the rotation looking the way it did the bullpen looking the way it did where the offense would co- come from uh, moving on from Mookie Betts like everything went right for the most part for Boston um, didn't end it with a World Series but man I I have no idea what Boston's up to this offseason and how they're going to approach it how do you see Bloom approaching it and what did you now that you've had a couple of weeks to think about the 2021 season? What are your biggest takeaways that you're still thinking about? So, in terms of approaching the off season, I'm not surprised that they've done it the way they have, which has been these kind of lower key, smaller signings that are more about the edges of the roster, I think, than anything else. I never got the sense, even coming out of last year, that or coming out coming out of the postseason, that this Red Sox team was going to make a big splash in the free agent market. I think that 20, to, to me, the comparison for the 2021 Red Sox was the 20, uh, was it the 2019 Giants was the last run for, for Buster Posey, or for Buster Posey, for Madison Bumgarner and friends and, and Bruce Bochy's last year there, correct? Yes. Um, where they, they went into the deadline as basically a 500 and above 500 team on this crazy hot win streak. And it was, okay, do we add, do we sell, what do we do? And they mostly stayed pat. Uh, I think because there was an understanding in that front office that, and it kind of got borne out by the fact that they completely collapsed, in, especially in September, that this team was better than expected, but not good enough yet for them really to start making the moves they felt like they wanted to make, or that they felt were necessary to kind of bump the team up one level. I think Boston is in a similar place where last year really was just a surprise, and part of it was they just upped the... Bloom did a very nice job in the 2020 in the offseason after 2020 adding veteran guys who if nothing else raised the floor from awful to acceptable. You know, la- the 2020 Red Sox gave like 200 innings to the likes of Zach Godley and Chris Mazza and Jeffrey Springs and like guys who had no business being on a major league roster in that in that state of time. Those innings this year instead went to guys who were supposed to be there, like Josh Taylor and Kiro Sawamura and the good version of Ryan Brazier. Um, a lot of the like, if you look at the Red Sox, you know their their worst pitching performers. They didn't get very many innings, and it's also guys who were very clearly just there to, to plug holes. And some of that too is the really the thing that went most wrong last season, which was the giant COVID outbreak. That pro- I don't I don't think they won. They would have won the division anyway, but certainly. Uh, made their road a little harder and a little more stressful. Regardless, yeah, I, I I just had a hard time seeing this team really making that big investment now because I don't really think anyone there is convinced that this team is at that stage. And maybe even more to the point, I wonder if this is a scenario like what I was talking about with the Cubs, where at least now the Red Sox could say, well, we know what the floor of this team is, or we can at least assume that the floor of this team is roughly 500. 
you know, did they outperform last year? Certainly, I think so. I think there were guys who had better years than probably would have been expected. And I think especially pitching-wise, they had a lot of help. You know, they got basically a full season's worth of starts out of Nick Pavetta and out of, uh, well, I guess getting a full season's worth of starts out of Martin Perez is not really a useful thing. But, you know, they got a full season's worth of starts out of Nate Uvaldi, who had probably his best season ever. You know, there was some very good luck for them on that side of things, and they didn't really have to dig too much into the virtually non-existent pitching depth, at least they have. Hitting-wise, that was another story, but, you know. I think, obviously, what you can see with Bloom is he's trying to build a versatile, variable, flexible team on a mid-tier contender budget. Or at least he's not going to be making those really big free agent splashes that marked large portions of the Theo Epstein era and certainly were big portions of the Ben Charrington era and certainly were big portions of the Dave Dombrowski era. I don't see the Red Sox going that direction, in part, too, because I think, you know, if you're the Red Sox, there are two really big financial questions you have going forward. One, is Xander Bogart's going to opt out of his contract next offseason? I think the answer is almost certainly yes, given the money that Corey Seager got and the money that Carlos Correa is going to get. I don't see how Bogarts doesn't join them in that in that department. Two, how much is it going to cost to lock up Rafael Devers long term if that's something you want to do? A follow up question there is, you know, is he a, is he a third baseman or a first baseman long term? But obviously, bigger question. But those are the two kind of I think guiding financial principles for the Red Sox going forward because those are their two best players bar none. So to me, the offseason around that has made a lot of sense in that you are seeing those smaller moves. You're seeing. Uh, Michael Waka, Rich Hill, James Paxton, who obviously isn't going to pitch this year, but will presumably if he comes out of his rehab, okay, be around for 2023. Those kind of lower, uh, lower floor, but you know, maybe higher variance. I mean, I think they probably think there's something to be unlocked with Waka. Although if the Rays couldn't figure it out, I don't know what hope the Red Sox have. Hill obviously is a guy who can give you. He's pretty much a five and fly starter at this point, but there is value to that. Obviously, especially if you feel like maybe later on in the season he can give you some valuable relief innings. Yeah, I think this this feels more like a team that has decided we're going to aim low because we we feel like the ceiling is high, is higher than we thought. Granted, I don't know how safe that feels. I, I think it does help that a la Atlanta, there uh, there aren't really too many impact free agents here. Eduardo Rodriguez obviously is gone, but I think they've more or less decided how they want to replace him, and that's probably some combo of Walk and Hill. Kyle Schwarber is probably the biggest name still left standing. I would love to see him come back. I don't know how he fits on this team. I think J.D. Martinez opting into the next year of his deal kind of probably hamstrung them there and also probably took them out of any realistic running because I imagine Schwarber is probably looking for a multi-year deal worth a lot of money. And unless the Red Sox are completely ready to give up on – well, even if they're ready to give up on Bobby Dahlbeck, one, they have Tristan Casas already hanging out in the minors, who is their first baseman of the future. Two, Schwarber is not a first baseman. I mean, if you gave him a whole offseason, I think maybe he gets to a point of base competence – but you should just go get a first baseman. And the outfield, I mean, you, I, I would I would happily say I would much rather have Kyle Schwarber than Jaron Duran right now, but Jaron Duran is going to be way, way, way cheaper than Kyle Schwarber and is also going to be cheaper for a much longer period of time. So I kind of doubt that that's going to go anywhere. Truthfully, I think the Red Sox team you see right now is probably the Red Sox team that you're going to see take the field on opening day whenever that is barring probably another few minor additions around the margins and, you know, maybe I think more bench guys certainly would be part of that question. Because truthfully, I, I don't know where, where even they have room left to go because they're, they have a roster that feels kind of locked in at this point. You know, you could argue that, okay, if you bring back Jackie Bradley Jr., as they've done, and I think that move was less about JBJ than it was about the two prospects they got back from Milwaukee for Hunter Renfro, both of whom are kind of high up, like 
high miners kind of looking closer to depth guys at this point, but depth guys who might have some big tools and some capacity. JBJ is just there, I think, at this point, purely as a, as a fourth outfielder who can play center because I don't really think they're fully, they feel great about Alex Verdugo being the full-time center fielder. I think they'd rather have him in right field anyway. Regardless, if you're playing Jackie Bradley Jr. in the center, you know, does that mean Kike Hernandez is your second baseman? Well, kind of, because the second base market's pretty much empty right now. You know, they missed out on Semyon and Baez and Chris Taylor, who were the three best options of that position. There's really nothing available at this point anymore. You know, I, I just, I don't really see, I think sh- you could certainly make the case that, you know, adding Schwarber would, would or bringing Schwarber back would be, would be the right decision. Obviously, I would have loved to have seen more pitching added that was less of the Michael Walker, Rich Hill variety. But the other part of that is the starting pitchers are already kind of gone too. There's not really a whole lot left for Boston to do unless they feel like they have some hidden trade value in some of these guys. But they're high, the, pros, the prospects they have high up in their system are guys that they want to build around. Marcelo Mayer and Cases and Nick York, and depending how he bounces back from a very, very bad season, Jeter Downs. And then the rest of the guys are more kind of rolls of the dice. You know, Brian Matta, who's coming off Tommy John surgery now. Gilberto Jimenez, who's gonna, who it will be available in the Rule 5 draft whenever that actually happens. Uh, Noah Song, who has uh, Navy commitments that have uh, messed with his developmental timeline, obviously. And then you're talking more about guys like Connor Siebold, who is more in that Nick Pavetta mold. Kind of a poor man's Nick Pavetta, just being a, a back-end starter, more likely than not. So I don't know that Boston really has a whole lot of avenues left to make this team better. I just think that they have decided, or at least settled, that this current roster will keep them in that 80-ish win pool and that they've already seen that the upside is there for better and i think too they probably feel like well we can make moves in season two you know we, we don't know what the next cba is going to look like we don't know you know what we're going to be able to do during the season but yeah I, I think this the red sox team you see now is probably the one you're going to see starting the season i think the only real spot where i mean there, there are plenty of spots i'd like to see more i think the one spot where you can you can certainly argue that there's still better they can do is the outfield uh, if only because there are also still plenty of outfield candidates available. Uh, I just don't really have much faith that they're going to do anything there other than uh, maybe, I mean, maybe it's another kind of Hunter Renfro bat, maybe another one or two year deal for a, a, a you know, a, a particular side of a platoon. You know, maybe they decide that they want to try a platoon in center with Jackie Bradley Jr. Or they want to try a platoon in left with Jaron Duran, or they just want a right-handed bat for the outfield that they can stick with those two guys and kind of bounce between the two. Maybe someone who's more, glove centric because you know center field is tough or maybe they go with a more offense first player if they decide they want to do that in left because left field in Fenway is traditionally where the worst defender goes um but we'll see I I just don't know that there's a lot of intrigue left to the season in terms of the moves the Red Sox have left to make I think the intrigue for me is how do they kind of balance this roster and what do they do if they need to upgrade at midseason do they rely on the prospects uh, obviously Garrett Whitlock is a guy that they certainly seem, you know, certainly broke out onto the scene and certainly feels like he could be, um, a very important piece of the bullpen. Tanner Houck is obviously there is rotation depth. Um, they're going to ideally hopefully get a full season out of Chris sale. That's obviously a, a, a huge deal. Um, they have nice, they have guys like Connor Siebold and Cutter Crawford, uh, down in the minors who can give them some, uh, back of the rotation depth, but yeah, we'll see. I, I do think that what's left at this point is is just more of the smaller moves, the kind of around the margins moves that I, I think that's what Bloom wants to do anyway. But we'll see. Are they a playoff team next year? That's so tough just because the AL East is just such a brutal division. 
I don't think they're better than Tampa. I like the I like the Blue Jays ceiling more. Who knows what happens with the Yankees? But I'm worried about the were... Simeon aspect. Like if Simeon had been locked in, I think I would be more uh, certain about the Blue Jays. Um, yeah, I can I can understand that. I, I I'm not a Kevin Biggio guy. I'm just not a I believer. I think the Red Sox are definitely a contender, and I think obviously expanded if they're expanded playoffs, I'll say yes, they're a playoff team. I mean, if they're expanded playoffs, all four of the best, all four of the good teams in the AL East make the playoffs, no problem. Um, I don't think is that is that happening? Where are we at with that? Are we sure that's a thing that's happening I think, next year? I think it's going to happen. I, I, the league wants it too much, and I, I don't think they come out of the CBA without getting it because so that that's is seven per league. I think it'd be seven or eight per league. It's oh my god! Five. Oh my god! Um, I think it would end up being eight because you want to give the number one seed the first round by. Uh, you would have two, eight, three, seven. Oh wait, no, what? Actually, that doesn't make sense. Regardless, I think it's minimum seven teams and possibly eight. And if it is seven teams and you're looking at two more teams from last year, comfortably you're saying the Blue Jays. And then after that, you know, if Oakland is taking a step back, it's maybe it's Seattle, maybe it's the Angels, maybe it's the Tigers, maybe it's Cleveland. But I think Boston pretty comfortably is. I think Boston is probably in that second tier of of, of contenders, but I think they're very comfortably in that second tier, if you know what I mean. I, I think it would be a, a it would take an unexpected disaster for this to be a bad team next year or an unexpected series of disasters. Because I do think that the floor is much better than I think we all anticipated it would be by this point. Some of that is guys like JD Martinez looking better. And some of that is guys like uh, Yavaldi and perhaps Pavetta like showing some level, some possible higher level of performance, regardless you know, I, I have a hard time seeing this team as a losing team next year unless a lot of stuff goes wrong. Yeah, we'll have to see. And it just, I, I understand, like, I think baseball will actually, like, the on-field product will get better. And I think late in the season will be better by expanded playoffs. But it it's sad that we have to expand the and we have to expand the apple so that we can have this illusion that all these different teams can make the playoffs to get the owners to be like, hey, we should probably spend some more on some veterans. So we should give up some prospects and stop hoarding capital because we have a better shot at the playoffs than we used to. So like, instead of just going for one of those five or one of those four spots, um, now it became five with the wild card. But instead of just going for that, and especially before the year, we have to like keep, we have to keep uh, placating these owners who are not doing what they should be doing anyway. And it's just like, Hey, this is another way of without, telling them they need to spend and do more stuff late in the year and not uh, have half the league tanking, especially after the all-star break. We need to uh, expand this. Like it, it, it's frustrating that that will probably pay dividends, but I wish that was not the case. Yeah. And I think the sad thing about it is we're also talking about spending a little extra for like three more wins. Yeah. That is like the bare minimum that the owners are willing to do at this point. And it sucks. Like, it suck, like you said. It sucks that teams are going to be better, but that it's going to be in the most for most teams with pretty minimal effort because they've all realized, oh, well, the bare minimum we need to do is basically be a five hundred team. If we can do that, we're great. And for most teams, and I think that's probably why you've seen uh, the Yankees and Dodgers in particular, but also the Red Sox and, and other uh, as well. Why you're seeing why you saw them so much less involved in that free agent frenzy because I think every one of those teams can look at their own rosters and their own projections and go, oh, we're already there. This is basically, at worst, a 500 team already. All we need to do is make sure that we don't slip below that. And that's much easier to do and much cheaper to do because all you have to do is do what the Red Sox did last year. 
you get Hunter Renfro, you get Kike Hernandez, you get Kevin Plawecki, you get, you know, you get these minor guys who, no, I shouldn't say minor, you get Christian Arroyo, you get, you know, uh, Martin Perez, you get these guys who can provide, like, one to two war worth of production for very little money. And then you move on. They're they're eminently replaceable and eminently disposable. And that's obviously going to be – this is beyond the Red Sox at this point. It's a much bigger CBA thing. That question of how you kind of negotiate a league financially where more and more players are just being used for one to three years and then just kind of being disposed of because that's really all the teams need them for at this point. But I think you've seen that the Red Sox are kind of already on that strategy of we have our core pieces and we're just going to supplement them year year in and year out with – you know, short deals for veterans and, you know, whatever comes out of the farm system and platoon pieces. And we're, we're, we're going to build a very flexible roster that costs way less because we don't have stars at every position and we're not going to try to get stars at every position. And I think that is the new team building mindset. Most likely, you know, you get a few stars and you build around them. It's not quite a stars and scrubs approach, but I think it's understanding that there are two very large classes in terms of MLA players. There's the you know, the, the wealthy guys and there's everybody else. There's, it's not quite a 1%, 99%, but you take advantage of the guys who aren't the wealthy ones. You know, you, you take advantage of the pre-arb guys. You take advantage of the guys who've moved from organization to organization. You take advantage of minor league free agents. You know, that's, that's how the Rays have done it forever. It's certainly not a surprise that that has spread the baseball at large. We'll leave it there, John Taylor. Uh, what can the good folks do to support Fangraphs.com and uh, keep up with you on Twitter.com at Taylor. So for Fangraphs, obviously, membership is the best way to support us. You can sign up anytime you'd like for a one-year membership that is $25 a year with ads, $60 a year, or believe $50 a year, actually, ad-free. Really should have that number memorized by now. Uh, in terms of what we got at Fangraphs, um, obviously, we are still locked out, but we are still doing our usual off-season stuff. As I mentioned last week, that includes Jay Jaffe's Hall of Fame profiles, which uh, we've got number two this week so far. Sorry, we've now... We're now up to number three this week. Uh, we had Scott Rowland and Gary Sheffield added to the pile that already included Todd Helton. If you want to go remember some 90s and 2000s guys, uh, Jay is your man. Dan Zimborski is is chugging away on his Zips projections. Uh, we had San Francisco today, Seattle the day before. We will have Detroit tomorrow for those who are interested in how the Tigers look. And probably our most popular offseason feature, our top prospect list. Those have started as of today. We have our top 41 Angels prospects, courtesy Eric Longenhagen and Brandon Golowski, or sorry, Brendan Golowski, uh, who have ranked all the prospects in that not very good system. Uh, obviously, that is one of 30. Eric and company will be putting those out all throughout the offseason, leading up to February's top 100, which is obviously our probably our biggest thing of the offseason. So go on, go on to Fangraphs. You can check all that stuff out. Like I said, we're still doing stuff. Uh, throughout the lockout because there is always there is always baseball stuff to talk about even if there are no signings or trades or anything official like that uh, as for me yes go find me on twitter if you want i i yell about a lot of things that are that are weird i was going to tweet the other day about how weird it is that alien aliens 3 and aliens resurrection are on amazon prime mm-hmm. alien 2 is on hulu mm-hmm. so if you don't have hulu you can only watch one three and four and you would be so confused <laughs> going from one to three <laughs> I, I love how weirdly fragmented our, our our media consumption has become because there are 90 billion different streaming platforms and no one has any idea what's on any of them. It's very confusing, but there's a great website, Decider.com, that does uh, the Lord's work with this stuff. So it, I, I use it for everything. I just type in 
TV show or movie X and then put Decider next to it and then I'll immediately see where it is. It, it's also really funny to me that there exists an entire sphere of media whose entire purpose is telling you where certain streaming TV shows and movies are. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's just such a, a bizarre thing. I mean, I guess you could say, well, that's what TV Guide was, but TV yeah. Guide was also not like journalism. And, I don't know, whatever. Point is, we live in very strange times. Absolutely. But... There's also good things for these strange times, which are uh, like the Aliens franchise for John Taylor or Yellow Jackets on Showtime for me. It's uh, are, are you look are you looking to get a swag bag or, or some some Showtime get that Showtime ad money? I mean, it's great stuff. Chase I just Thomas get excited. Podcast is brought to you by Showtime. I mean, why not? Why why not? I think you use I, code Chase Thomas to get uh, your first three months of Showtime free. I'm not against that Showtime. Okay. I mean, John Taylor could do the read for us. We could split it. Yeah, I, I got no problem with that. I got no problem if they want to give me free cable. Yeah. I, I like money. Maybe that's the, the end game here with the podcast is just we, we just get them to we just get enough uh, different sponsors that all our bills are just paid like through different sponsorships. I, I'm, I'm very much just embracing that George Costanza, you know, dragging the trophy, dragging the World Series trophy around the parking lot. Yes. Being like, as I'm doing my ad reading, like, I fear no retribution. <laughs> like, I don't care. Just give me money. I like it. Anthony Jeselnik like does money. that on uh, the JRVP podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I like when you're a comedian, you're allowed to do that. It's pretty amazing. Like just uh, some of the weirdest ad reads you'll ever hear is if you listen to Jeselnik on. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm not surprised. Like those are those are basically just open opportunities for surrealist comedy, and yes. I always appreciate podcasters who make an art out of that. For um, sure, for sure. Yes, John Taylor, always a pleasure. Yes. Next week, yes. Tampa yes. Bay Rays. The Tampa Bay Rays. Let's let's finish off this division with a team that never does anything <laughs> except sign the next but AL Cy. We, we could just talk about the. It's funny we don't ever have to change what we say about the Rays because nothing ever changes about the Rays. They're always doing smart shit and they're always getting one over on you and they don't spend any money <laughs> and then at the end of the season they win a hundred games and you're just sitting there being like I hate I just hate <laughs> I hate. <laughs> I mean that's not fair. They gave they gave Wander Franco the bag. I'm glad when Wander Franco got the bag. Let's hear it for Wander Franco, folks. We love Wander. Franco. Hey, they paid him more than the Braves paid Ronald Acuna. Hey, I mean, look, that's the thing. This is this is progress. This is what progress looks like. It's a team as cheap and miserly as the Rays going. Well, even we have to do this. Like the dude is very clearly like Mike Trout, but a shortstop. Mm-hmm. Like we'd be insane not to give him money. I mean, is he getting traded five years from now regardless? Yes, probably. But still, at least they did it. Kudos to the Rays for finally once properly recognizing the monetary value of someone and not getting all weird about it. I mean, it's the same team that quibbled with Blake Snell over like $100,000. So good for them for finally doing the good thing once. They finally did the good thing. I, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm I'm just I have to bury a lot of my <laughs> my just disdain for the Rays, and I do not do a very good job hiding it. It's okay. It's okay. Let it all out. This podcast is supposed to be uh, this half is entertaining, space. half therapeutic. This is a safe space. I gotta I gotta yell. Yeah, absolutely. I yell a lot. I mean, you've been on bargle, it for long enough. I, I would assume you would associate this with the safe space, right? Yeah, I mean, if people want to, if people want this to turn into my therapy session, like my therapy is pretty boring, honestly. But hey, I'm, mm. I'm around. You know, I got, I got time. You got time. We all got time. 
speak for yourself i don't have a lot of time I, okay, my times. <laughs> well, you live in that grad school life. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I do have two months off though. Very nice. But hey. you know what I'm doing instead though, because I'm uh, neurotic, as they call it, John Taylor. Is I I don't have the patience. Um, so I've just been refreshing uh, the 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 UTK grades portal. So I'm just still waiting for for my finals and my grades and all that kind of stuff. And the deadline's not for like five more days and it's uh it's not good yeah you gotta you gotta stop refreshing that that that's not that's not doing you any good no it, i just and it frustrates me because i'm just like ah and i just uh, i shouldn't do it i shouldn't do it but dollywood and things like that are helpful dollywood john taylor you need when you come down to knoxville we're hitting up dollywood too like when you you're doing I, the tennessee game and then you're doing that's uh like, you're, that's mm-hmm. half the reason i would go to tennessee in the first place is to go to dolly parton's disneyland we stand Dolly Parton on this very podcast. She does. Why would, that. Why would we not? Dolly yeah. Parton is the best. It's a lot of fun. It's it's a pretty wild experience. I'll tell you that. I, uh, I'm it's, sure. It's a pretty wild experience, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's a very happy place. John Taylor, always a pleasure. Yes. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.